Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The Paris Agreement set a target to limit global warming to, quote, well below 2 degrees, but preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. However, if present trends continue, the world is set to blow past those international targets. This has led scientists, the policy community, and ethicists to consider strategies on climate change that assume the Paris Agreement targets will not be met in time. This includes the technologically novel but potentially problematic innovation called solar radiation modification, which can include the injection of aerosols into the atmosphere to essentially block heat from reaching the Earth. Solar radiation modification strategies are being developed and tested today, but are still a ways off from implementation. This gives us some time to weigh some ethical dilemmas around the use of this technology and devise rules over its implementation. To that end, my guest today, Janosch Pastor, has done some important work on solar radiation modification for global governance and climate justice. He is the executive director of the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative, and we kick off discussing what we mean by a global warming overshoot scenario that may necessitate the use of this potentially controversial solar radiation modification technology. So I must admit, this was not an issue that was on my radar until the good folks at the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative reached out to me to put it on my radar, and I'm so glad they did. This is an absolutely fascinating conversation that will give you an early insight into debates and discussions that are more likely than not going to dominate some of the conversations around climate mitigation strategies in the not-so-distant future. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I know you will too. All right, now here is my conversation with Janosch Pastor of the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think in order to understand overshoot, we need to look back a little bit and say that uh, global mean temperature has in fact been fairly constant over the last few thousand years. And uh, But more recently, as a result of the climate crisis, what we have seen is a substantial increase in global average temperature. And we're now about 1.2 degrees above historical average. Now, this is an average, and in different parts of the world, at at different times, you get sometimes more, sometimes less than this average. For example, 
at the uh, high latitudes, like in the Arctic region, the average temperature is usually uh, twice as much as the global average. So if we're at 1.2, uh, the Arctic region is more like 3. Now, uh, there is global consensus uh, through the, for example, the Paris Agreement, that the global temperature should not rise above 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade. And the reason why this level was selected is because uh, scientists feel that beyond that, uh, the world may end up with irreversible impacts. Uh, more recently, uh, governments are talking about 1.5 degrees, not the range of 1.5 to 2, but simply 1.5. That's no, what they call they, the high ambition coalition is coalescing or, or around the 1.5 target, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. But there has not yet been an, a formal intergovernmental agreement to say that now we're aiming for 1.5. So that's the situation. Now, why should we be worried about this? Because uh, 1.5 doesn't look like so much or 1.2, the current level. And But the, the, the fact is that current impacts are already pretty bad. When you look around the world, you see uh, forest fires, floods, uh, excess heat, excessive heat in many places. Uh, many impacts are already clearly visible. And what the uh, scientists are telling us is that at 1.5 degrees, it will be much worse. Even that little difference from 1.2 to 1.5, the impacts will be much worse. This is what we saw in a recent report. Uh, in fact, just uh, uh, at the end of February, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, in its sixth assessment re uh, series, has just published a so-called Working Group 2 report, which talks about these issues. But this report also says that when we reach 1.5 degrees and maybe beyond, uh, it will be increasingly difficult to adapt to that, those temperatures. And yet, we must also recognize that the current trends are actually likely to take us to above 2 degrees centigrade, maybe somewhere between 2 to 3 degrees centigrade. And then scientists are saying we can expect catastrophic impacts in many different parts of the world, particularly those who are vulnerable, either vulnerable people or vulnerable ecosystems. So sorry for this long background, but overshoot means that the global uh, average temperature goes above some agreed limit, which in our case is the 1.5 degree uh, goal. And, uh, but, but at yeah. current levels, if current trends continue, not only will we overshoot 1.5, but we will more likely than not overshoot 2.5 or, or even 3 degrees. Well, you, you're right about that. That the, the likelihood is 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 uh, going to be more like over 1.5 degrees. So overshoot is anything above 1.5, including at 1.5. So uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that once we're in an overshoot scenario, i.e., more than 1.5 degrees, the world really has to find ways uh, to start managing the risks of the overshoot in a in a more structured way than just to simply say that we'll do some adaptation and we'll see how we survive. And uh, uh, first and foremost, that means a much more radical transformative emission reductions and carbon dioxide removal. But we know that this will take time. And uh, the window uh, uh, is closing on us to uh, to maintain the temperature at 1.5. As I said earlier, it's likely that we'll go higher. So we have to look at what else the world can do uh, 
uh, to manage these risks. And of course, adaptation is one. But again, this same IPCC report that I just referred to says that there are limits to adaptation because up to a certain temperature level, you can adapt, but then it goes beyond, it's simply impossible to adapt. So that's when other issues can come, other options can uh, come and may need to be considered, such as the somewhat controversial uh, solar radiation modification, or as some people call it, solar geoengineering. So, so let's let's discuss that because you know, given the likelihood, frankly, that overshoot is is a probability that the international community, the governments around the world, will not take the requisite steps necessary to keep. Um, temperatures under that 1.5 degree global average and, and frankly will overshoot it by a substantial degree. These other options uh, may become more and more prominent, more and more relevant in the coming years. And one that you've identified is solar geoengineering. Can you explain first, what is that? What do we mean by that? Okay, so solar geoengineering, and, and uh, we use a different term. We, we try to use the uh, terminology of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, solar radiation modification. Solar radiation modification. I will yeah. banish solar geoengineering from my <laughs> lexicon forever. Oh, we, shall, we shall refer to <laughs> yeah. the former. Go right ahead. Now, solar radiation modification, or SRM for short, these are, there are different techniques, but they all involve the change of the reflectivity or the albedo, as scientists say, of the Earth of the surface of the Earth to reflect uh, some of the incoming sunlight back into space and thereby cooling the planet. Uh, so there are different ways of doing that. There are basically three main uh, families of techniques. The first one is so-called ground-based albedo modification. And that very simple traditional things like painting roofs white, uh, uh, traditionally that has been used uh, uh, in many places, it keeps... Uh, places cool locally, but it is not something that one can apply globally. But there are also uh, nature-based solutions there, such as different plants have different kinds of leaves and different reflectivity. So it is possible to select certain trees that may reflect more sunlight back into space and thereby also cool the local areas. But ground-based tends to be generally local. Then there is something called marine cloud brightening, which is more of a regional approach. And in that technique, uh, one takes uh, seawater and sprays it into the sky near the coastline, and that forms clouds. And when clouds form, that form a certain shade and it reflects sunlight back into space and thereby cools the area underneath it. The Australian government is currently experimenting with marine cloud brightening to try to uh, save the uh, Great Barrier Reef uh, using this method as one of a number of options that they're looking at. So, so just to be clear, the marine cloud brightening, this exists currently? Like, do, does the Australian government have pilot projects ongoing or is this like something they're a technology they're working on developing? It, it exists in a uh, experimental, mm. I don't know if pilot project is the best, uh, but they are experimenting with actual ships actually spraying stuff into the okay. in, in, into the sky. So in, in that sense, it exists, but it's definitely at an experimental uh, level and it mm. is not being rolled out in any way at this stage. And by the way, that's true for 
all the solar radiation modification methods, but I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. So, but then the third uh, family of, of techniques, and that's the one that has been mostly re most researched and most talked about, uh, is stratospheric aerosol injection. It's a very complicated phrase, but what it means is that you take materials uh, that you spray into the lower stratosphere from aeroplanes or uh, balloons, which ones up there, they'll get mixed up and spread out through the whole globe. And those particles will reflect sunlight back into space and thereby cool the planet. Uh, now, uh, these, these techniques, uh, as, as the others don't, in fact, this one exists only in computer models, not even in experiments yet. And, uh, um, uh, scientists feel fairly sure that it would work, mainly because there are natural analogs. Uh, when a volcano erupts, you get a lot of the same materials that scientists are thinking about putting into the stratosphere. Uh, they, go, they are also thrown into the uh, atmosphere uh, along with the rocks and the Big Bang and everything else. Uh, but it was possible to measure uh, during major volcanic eruptions, such as the 1981 Mount Pinatubo eruption in the Philippines, that after the eruption, uh, the global temperature went down by about half a degree for uh, almost two years. So the scientists are saying, we can do this better without the Big Bang and the rocks. <laughs> we just uh, do it uh, uh, more efficiently. So that's the basic idea of stratospheric aerosol injection. On, on stratospheric aerosol injection, um, as you say, it's, it's being modeled with computers, um, is there a sense in the scientific community that if they wanted to say sprint ahead and, and, and do this, uh, how much longer would it take? Are we talking, are we talking about like decades away or are we talking about just a few years away from implementation? So uh, the scientists who are more heavily involved in this exercise in terms of modeling and, and so on, they would say that, if there were to be a coordinated international research program uh, to figure out everything that we don't know uh, about uh, this technology, this technique, it will take about 15 years before the world could be ready to start thinking about deployment. So, uh, you know, we're somewhere in between the range that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I bet it's not something that's like, you know, a, you know, something like that's part of science fiction. It's it's you know achievable in the not so distant future. It is achievable, and you know it's not science fiction because in fact there is currently uh, you can say something like this is happening, but not intentionally, but because of human uh, activity. Currently, fossil fuel combustion results in the release of aerosols at the ground level, mostly from power stations and also from cars. And uh, uh, in many countries, uh, the, that part of the pollution related to the sulfur content of the, of the, of the fuel will have been uh, scrubbed out. So it doesn't go out into the atmosphere. But in many places, it still comes out as local air pollution. And that, uh, that uh, pollution rises into the atmosphere and cools the planet. And it is cooling the planet currently to about half to one degree centigrade. And the, the, the point of this is that when the, the big cities of the world where local air pollution hasn't yet been cleaned up, but it soon will, 
once it's cleaned up, then the temperature will jump by half to one degrees. And so it just means that the work is going to be even harder uh, to deal uh, with the temperature increases that the world is facing. So to the extent that overshoot becomes more and more likely, and as overshoot becomes more and more likely, uh, options like sol- uh, stratospheric aerosol injection become more and more potentially attraf- uh, attractive. Uh, it carries with it some sort of profound ethical uh, considerations, which I know you uh, have spent a lot of time thinking through. Can you walk me through some of the trade-offs or ethical challenges that uh, accompany uh, solar geoengineering, or better put it, solar radiation modification. Yes, I, I will. I will try to do that. But before going there, just one more important uh, characteristic of solar radiation modification techniques: that these techniques are actually not there to solve the climate crisis. The only solution to solving the climate crisis is to reduce emissions and remove carbon from the atmosphere. Those are the only two things that will actually eventually solve the problem. The challenge that we have is that those actions take a long time. And while that is happening, the the globe is going to heat up, as we have discussed earlier. And so there comes scientists who say that, well, if you use a solar radiation modification such as stratospheric aerosol injection, you could keep the temperature rise to a certain agreed level while the world is reducing its emissions and while the world is uh, decarbonizing, uh, removing carbon from the atmosphere. So it's not a solution. It's more like a Band-Aid uh, that you, you, you have to, to do while the concentration of greenhouse gases is reduced in the atmosphere. So that's it an could theoretically yeah. like buy you some time uh, before you implement more sustainable solutions. Yes, but you have to be careful about that approach because when you say buy time, you could end up in the so-called moral hazard that people will say, oh, if it can buy us time, then we can continue to emit greenhouse gases. We don't need to bother about emission reduction. So we have to be super careful there because the priority remains emission reductions and carbon removal. Without doing those intensively, uh, solar radiation modification makes no sense. And, and then if you were to apply solar radiation modification without doing the massive emission reductions and carbon removals, you end up having to, you, you commit to having to do that forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, that has its own uh, challenges that come with it. Now, you asked for some of the ethical and other challenges that come with the use of, uh, that would come or could come with the use of this technique. And there are plenty. And in fact, uh, the technology itself is not that complicated. The real hard issues are uh, uh, the, the governance, the broad governance questions. To start with, um, who should decide to do this? Now, when you talk about stratospheric aerosol injection, even if you inject these gases at a one particular location, the impact will become global. It is the most global uh, action one could imagine. So it will affect everybody uh, uh, in every geographical location and uh, uh, unfortunately not necessarily equally. So one of the first ethical questions that arises is how does one deal with those who will end up being worse off? Even if it's a small percentage, you know, if it's just 5% of the people who will be worse off, 5% of 10 billion people is 
a lot. <laughs> so, uh, so how do you how do you deal with unequal impacts of stratospheric aerosol injection? But and what like the, the might most, be a, yeah. a harmful impact, uh, you know, if the, of of this technology. Okay. So uh, the way this technology would work is that it could reduce temperatures or or reduce the growth in temperatures. <laughs> either way, okay, uh, but. Uh, the, the 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 problem is that even if the work the system works to reduce the temperatures it cannot bring back the climate to what it used to be because the climate will have changed things will have happened so uh, so you will get all kinds of uh, regional effects that could be quite different than the global average impact. You could get more rainfall or less rainfall in some areas. Now, for some people, that may be useful. You know, if, if you're in the Sahel and you get a bit more rainfall, then you say, well, I'm happy. But if that means that in India there will be less rain, then, of course, India will not be happy. So there are these kinds of issues that arise and uh, uh any governance framework that one puts in place to make such a technology work uh, will have to take into account these kinds of governance challenges that will arise that will need to be addressed. And is there like uh, another sort of interesting wrinkle on, on the governance question is that, um, you know, I take it that this technology is not like super expensive, that like a wealthy individual, we already have, you know, here in the year uh, 2022, uh, we have like, you know, private individuals with their own space fleets, who knows uh, what that will be uh, 15 years from now. Um, and it seems that one ethical consideration is like, who gets to do this? That's, that's, uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. One challenge of this technique that it is relatively cheap, relative, of course, relatively cheap. Uh, uh, the more recent studies seem to indicate that uh, for uh, of the order of $10 billion a year, uh, you could actually implement a global stratospheric aerosol injection program. That is that is a lot of money for you and me, <laughs> uh, but it's not a lot of money when it comes to global climate action. When you think about the the, the cost of uh, emission reductions and other mitigation activities, you're talking about trillions of dollars annually. So now, uh, if you were to do solar radiation modification, you wouldn't do it instead of emission reductions. You would have to do it in addition to uh, emission reductions. But as as you said uh, earlier, the fact that it's just a few billion dollars, there are quite a few individuals who could actually do it themselves. Uh, and uh, you know they may want to save the world and and uh, uh, one billionaire or one or two billionaires could come together and say we're going to put all our money to save the world and we're going to start doing this and the the challenge is that there they wouldn't break any rules because there are no governance frameworks that that either uh, prohibit the the use of this technique or which would um which would guide uh, the world on how to implement such techniques uh, in a in some kind of multilaterally agreed uh, fashion so so it would be quite challenging to see how an in, uh, individuals uh, who are wealthy who would want to do it and even if it's not just themselves but they could get together with a few countries let's say a few small island countries who are desperate because the even a 1.5 degree centigrade temperature rise is going to flood their 
islands, their countries will disappear. So they are desperate. And you could envisage a scenario uh, where such countries get together with a few wealthy individuals, and then it's the countries who do it. And then again, it's a question of international relations, but those countries wouldn't be breaking any rules. So uh, these are the kinds of questions that uh, that the, the world needs to, to figure out before considering uh, seriously uh, these kinds of techniques. And maybe, and, and you know, some people say that this technique is ungovernable. Well, I, I'm not sure if it's totally ungovernable, but it surely will be quite difficult uh, to, to actually work these out. Our track record uh, in the world is not very good at, at, at good uh, solutions um, which, which lead uh, to, to climate justice and, and other justice uh, in the world. So uh, these are really serious questions that need to be addressed because, uh, because the, if, if there were to be unilateral actions by countries or individuals, that can result in very substantial global security challenges. And frankly, uh, as we see the world today, um, we don't need any more geopolitical security challenges added to what we already have. So, you know, given that that this technology is still many years away, um, what opportunities do you see exist for appropriate governance of, say, solar radiation modification? Like, does the United Nations or the United Nations Environmental Program or other multilateral forums provide an opportunity for thinking through the kinds of governance questions that would be required should this technology eventually be deployed? In theory, a number of UN entities uh, have some kind of limited mandate to address some parts of these issues. And some have also addressed some parts of these issues. We, we need to start with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which has uh, provided information about these techniques in its past and its current uh, reports, and it will probably continue to do so in the future. Uh, the UN Environment Program is a place where uh, there were already some discussions about the governance of uh, carbon removal and solar radiation modification uh, uh, three years ago. And uh, uh, there was a resolution that was submitted by uh, some countries. At that time, there was no consensus on that. And maybe at some point in the future, that will come back. So there, there are roles for many of these different entities. UNESCO has done some work, has been doing work on the ethical issues related to uh, solar radiation modification. But what is really missing is a kind of a, a an overview of how the world is going to address this issue of temperature overshoot and what the implications are for different UN entities and for, of course, UN member states and for the world as a whole. And that is the, the role uh, that could be played by the UN General Assembly. The UN General Assembly is the place where, of course, all the countries have a seat and a voice. Uh, but more importantly, the General Assembly can address in a transdisciplinary manner issues that cross boundaries. Because whether or not one thinks about sol uh, stratospheric aerosol injection, this is not just about climate. It's not just about environment. It's also about health. It's about geopolitical security issues uh, and, and so on and so forth. So... Uh, 
one needs to have a, a broad look and the UN General Assembly could uh, frame this issue and provide some overarching guidance to the world on how to address it, how to learn about this technique, how to, uh, to understand it better, and give guidance to the different entities in the UN system and, yes, other intergovernmental bodies too, uh, to address the issue from the perspective of their mandates and their interests. And then we have a situation where we can start moving forward and we will understand and learn better about this technique. And then eventually the world can get ready uh, for some decision-making that will need to take place. Not today. The decision-making doesn't need to take place today. Today, uh, what one needs to do is learn and understand and, and encourage conversations. But the point, the time will come in a few years from now, maybe. It's not clear. It depends how well we're doing on emission reductions also. But the time might come when, uh, when there will be pressure for uh, decision-making. And, and the world needs to get there. And it will require quite a bit of learning, understanding. And, and that can be achieved through conversations, putting these issues on the agendas, and so on and so forth. Uh, well, Janosha, I hope we're, we're advancing the conversation a little bit today uh, through this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Super interesting. You're welcome. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Janosh Pastor. That was really interesting and I think a really important insight into policy debates and ethical debates, frankly, that will become very much the fore of conversations in climate policy circles in years to come. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.